In July 2020, tens of thousands of passionate and committed people from around the globe will convene in San Francisco and Oakland at the 23rd International AIDS Conference. This gathering among the world's largest conferences will happen during a critical year when global goals for the fight against HIV AIDS come due. In 2020, the conference comes back to sacred ground in the Bay Area, a front line in the fight against HIV after 30 years. In this podcast, we'll be talking to a diversity of inspiring guests. They have been and remain at the very forefront of the ongoing fight against HIV AIDS, both at home and abroad. Right now, the first message is that it's a problem. It's a real problem, and it's your problem. And you can help, and you can make an impact in in fixing it. In today's episode, we spoke with Kenneth Cole. Kenneth Cole is an iconic fashion designer who over the last three decades has made a name for himself as one of the most outspoken supporters of AIDS awareness and research. He's used his platform as a well-known public figure to promote activism around HIV AIDS through his iconic ad campaigns. For years, he led AMFAR, the American Foundation for AIDS Research. He's now a UN AIDS International Envoy. I'm Andrew Schwartz. I'm Steve Morrison. And I'm Sarah Allender. This is AIDS 2020. So you've made storytelling part of your career since the beginning. I mean, tell us how you actually started in fashion. I mean, I know that you started with shoes, of course, and you're most famous for for that, although you do everything now um, for men and women. But storytelling is a big part of how you started. Storytelling is, is I guess it's a big part. My father had a small shoe factory in a tough part of New York called Williamsburg. Yeah. And um, Peter Luger's Peter, not far from Peter Luger's. And um, then I we then we started importing shoes because it was just too hard to make shoes domestically. A product called Candies, which a lot of um, people know. And then I started my own business a few years after that, because I knew if I didn't do it, then I probably never would. And it's a kind of a, a difficult transition that, that, that one often makes. So it was actually 35 years ago. I was 11 at the time. Eleven, and, yeah, and um, not really. So I um, <laughs> uh, wanted to do something unique and, and different, and and uh, and speak to people in different ways. And so I had a little bit of money. I wanted to start my business, and I knew then, like today, most startup companies don't survive the first year. They underestimate how much they need. They underestimate the time it takes to realize a return on their investment. So I named the company Kenneth Cole because. We didn't have the search engines then, and I couldn't afford to make up a name and hope a year later, two years later, that it still um, wasn't uh, objectionable on some level. So then I ran to Italy, found a factory, knowing I could I could probably get credit from an Italian shoe factory that needed business rather than an American bank that didn't. Yeah. And I designed the cool line of lady shoes, came back, had to sell it, and you had two choices in those days. You could take a room at the Hilton Hotel with 1,100 other companies, 34s, 30-some-odd companies per four, and um, which was not inexpensive, maybe more than I could have even afforded, and uh, but not very defining and not a good way to introduce yourself to the marketplace. And the other alternative was, was to take a fancy showroom within a two-buck radius of the Hilton Hotel, which neither, clearly I didn't have the time or the money for that either. So on a whim, I called um, I called a friend of mine in the trucking business, and I says, if I could figure out how to park one of your 40-foot trailers 
across the street from the Hilton Hotel in front of one of those fancy buildings where he lent it to me. And he said, sure, jerk, you can't park a bicycle for 10 minutes, let alone a truck right, for four Right, not days. easy parking over there. This is New York. Yeah. So I said, uh, but if, if I can figure out how to do it, well, you lend it to me. He said, if you can figure out how to do it, I'll help you decorate it. So I call <laughs> the mayor's office. It was Mayor Koch at the time. I said, excuse me, Mr. Mayor, how does one get permission to park a 40-foot trailer on the corner of 6th Avenue and 56th Street? And the answer is, sorry, son, they don't. This is New York. We get permission only under two circumstances. If you are a utility company servicing the streets, AT&T or Con Ed, or if you're a production company right. shooting a full-length motion picture, because we were going with an I Love New York campaign, then we probably still are today. So that afternoon, I went to a stationery store, changed my letterhead from Kenneth Cole Inc. to Kenneth Cole Productions Inc. Productions. Productions Inc. I filed for a permit the following morning with the mayor's office to shoot a full-length motion picture called The Birth of a Shoe Company. I right. Op- I opened for business um, with a decorated trailer, a very cool trailer, on the corner of 6th Avenue and 56th Street on December 2nd, 10 days later. And I saw, I had Kliegoites, I had stanchions, I had a director, sometimes there was film in his camera, sometimes there wasn't. Right. <laughs> and I saw every important buyer in the industry, and uh, the more important they were, the longer I made them wait. And I sold 40,000 pair of shoes in two and a half days. 40,000? Yeah. And there was a phone booth on the corner, uh, I had a lot of quarters, and I kept calling the factory and changing production as, as each... Customer came there's, no, there's no like easily available cell phones right. then it was either. A, just a different world then. Yeah. So, and I was off and running. The company, we were public, traded on the New York Stock Exchange. The symbol was KCP, Kenneth Cole Productions, for 20 years. We recently went private, but the company is still Kenneth Cole um, Productions. And, and it is very much then, like today's bad storytelling. And um, uh, uh, interestingly, and, uh, and the first real film that I was a part of was The Battle of Amphar, where we right. actually took. Um, Documentary on HBO. Yeah, where I used a lot of the elements of my life. You we were the executive of producer of that. Right? I was, yes, and uh, and I and I worked with a couple of filmmakers who had done other films on the subject that were very articulate and committed to the cause. Everything we do today, to your point, is about storytelling, and there, we do it in 140 characters, or we do it in a longer and in long form, and right. we do it in podcasts, and we do it in short documentaries, and we do them in long and short tweets. How did you um, decide? I mean, this is a big decision. And I, I was a teenager in the 80s, and I remember, you know, how scary AIDS was and is, but how scary it was when we first became conscious of it. But we were a lot more prone to causes like Live Aid, for instance. Live Aid was very big in our minds. Um, you know, South Africa, Nelson Mandela, very big in our minds. AIDS was something that, you know, and, and I grew up in the D.C. area around a big city, but we didn't know much about it. And you were one of the first people in fashion to say, hey, wait a minute, we need to do something about this. How, a, where, why did you do it? And B, you know, why, why do you think you were the first? And what went behind that? It was 1985, and there was this pervasive threat, um, this ominous dark cloud that was lurking, and we we all knew it, but nobody want, could speak about it because stigma was so devastating in those days. And Ronald Reagan, as we know, didn't mention the word AIDS publicly till 1987, till 40,000 people already died. So to attach yourself to the at-risk groups, which essentially were... Um, intravenous drug users, uh, gay men specifically, and um, and Haitians, uh, because people believe that it came to us through uh, through Haiti. So maybe because I wasn't 
I didn't feel concerned, maybe because I wasn't part of the at-risk community, I, and I, I felt here was an opportunity to say something that needed to be said, and people were reluctant to do it. And, and I understood that reluctance as I started down this road, and, and I got it. And, and, and today, we believe that more people arguably have died from stigma than from the virus itself. Right. And because of the fear of, of how they would be dealt with by, by their peers, by society, in, in the workplace, and their reluctance to come forward. Actually, I have an interesting story I'll tell you a little bit later that talks about how it, it's, it, it goes on, it prevails. It's not, it wasn't just something that existed in the, uh, in the 80s. So um, here was a chance to say something important that few would, and few maybe could, arguably. And I had a small business. I didn't have a, that much I was concerned about. And, and so we did an ad campaign um, with Annie Leibowitz agreed to photograph an iconic photographer, and we've got some of the biggest models of our day sure. who agreed to donate themselves um, and their celebrity. And then we found all these beautiful children who agreed to participate. And because no, people are not afraid of beautiful women, and, and we love all children, um, we don't uh, learn to dislike them until they grow up and have opinions. And um, I'm married to a beautiful woman, and I'm a little afraid of her. Just to be honest, I mean, just to be honest. Well, you know? but you weren't when you married her. So <laughs> that's, that's true. Right. That's true. That's so, true. Um, and children. So the notion, and it was for the future of our children's support AIDS research. So our goal was, is start a conversation. See, make it easier to speak about what everybody needed to speak about. And so essentially, it was stigma. So that was the first campaign in 1985. But what was interesting, and then one quickly learns that. From the earliest stages, we knew we didn't know how to cure it, but we knew how to contain it, which is so ironic. And not we haven't come that much further, interestingly, today. Mm-hmm. So it was clean needles and safe sex. But interestingly, it was illegal to give out clean needles, and it was illegal to advertise condoms. So right. I joined the board of Amfar, and Amfar starts supporting a needle exchange program, dealt with some of the legislative implications. And I personally, in behalf of my company, we did a, a, an ad with a picture of a condom. We airbrushed off the words, so it wasn't a definitively a condom, but I mean, it could have looked been, like it, a condom. It could have been confused as a graduation hat. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> and but and with the message, shoes aren't the only thing we encourage you to wear. And right, support AIDS research. It's an iconic and, ad now. I mean, everybody knows that ad. We're going to put notes with this podcast, so and, and we're going to have slideshow of all these ads the, for the future of our children, the future of the models, um, the you know wear a condom ad, everything. You know, we're going to put that up. You know, to have the ability to speak about something as as important as this in people's lives was something that I I loved and I felt so kind of privileged to be able to do this and to find a voice and find a way to to um, get people's attention you know in, in unique and, and interesting and compelling ways so um, and it's what I do and it's what I've always done it's what I do for a living and I've you know today there's lots of voices out there and how do you get heard um, how do you get your have your voice make it meaningful and allow it to break through Ken it's a really big moment came a little later with your We All Have AIDS ad in 2005. What was the logic behind that? What were you trying to do there? And who, who was in that ad? Steve brings up a really good point. This, you know, and this ad was not without controversy, of course. In 2004, Amfar was going through its issues. And there was a request of Dr. Krim if she would consider restructuring the leadership of Amfar. 
And she asked me insistently if I would agree to take on the chairmanship um, and succeed her. And I um, was reluctant to do it, but I eventually, I, I agreed to do it. But I did, you know, a lot of reflection at that moment in time. And when I had first joined the board of AMFAR in 87, I joined, did my ad in 85, but it ran in 86. Um, there were maybe 18 AIDS organizations in America at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at this moment in time, there was about 1,800. And they were pretty much, for the most part, they were all with the biggest of hearts and best of intentions tripping all over each other. And there was huge dilution um, in all these important and powerful resources. And um, so media resources, political resources, and creative resources, so and, and financial resources. So it, thinking, how do we get everybody to come together? And so the goal was bring together all these iconic individuals, each of whom have individually, independently made their mark in the AIDS crusade. And um, from Elton John to uh, Elizabeth Taylor to Alicia Keys at the time and Tom Hanks, who had just done the film, um, Philadelphia, you know, before that, and Nelson Mandela and many more. So we... It doesn't um, get much bigger than that. No, but and they they all... But how do you get everybody to agree to kind of stand together arm in arm? Because everybody's messages are different. Everybody's got different ideas and thoughts on how they can make an impact in the community that they've identified. So, but the, the message again was, was stigma. It's the same message. Here, there, here we are now, almost 20 years later. And the notion was we all have AIDS. And if anyone is infected, we're all affected. And if right. AIDS exists anywhere, it essentially exists everywhere. And some people might have been confused by this because Nelson Mandela didn't have AIDS. Tom Hanks didn't have AIDS. Alicia Keys didn't have AIDS. They you know, physically have AIDS. Right. Nor did I. Right. Um, but what's interesting, though, there was another component to this campaign, which I don't usually talk about. Um, and it was the PR component was going to be, we had asked mo- many of these people if they would agree to appear publicly a week in advance of the opening of this campaign with a T-shirt that says, I have AIDS. Mm-hmm. And then, but not elaborate and not qualify it. Um, and then knowing that a week later we were all going to be together, we're going to have a big press conference in New York, in Gramercy Park, and we were going to say, we all have AIDS. Um, some have it medically, some have it socially, some have it intellectually. Intellectually, yeah. So we're all, and if we weren't infected, we're all affected in one way or another. But nobody really wanted. To, nobody wanted to go first. Sure. And, this, and these are thing. some of the biggest activists. So I had a, I had a, a, um, a writer said to me that at the time, "Well, would you have done it?" I said, "Sure, I would have done it." And then you know, then I thought and I said, "You know, maybe I wouldn't." Right. I've got three daughters, and why should I subject them? to the hearsay that is imminent. They have um, to go to school too. They have to go to school, and why should I subject them to having to qualify to defend um, this you know, campaign of mine and this message that I'm intent on? It, it isn't theirs, so I, maybe my answer was maybe I wouldn't. Right. So, which arguably makes the case that stigma is, was as bad then, okay, here we are, this is now 04, as it was in, in 85, 84. Incredible. So, and maybe still today too. Sure, because I mean, could you get LeBron James to wear a shirt that says, I have AIDS, even if he's sympathetic to the cause. I mean, it's a tough thing for somebody to, you know, to really internalize, even if they really want to fight the disease. Right. So stigma prevails. 
Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's what we do as a community. And we prejudge, we characterize, we stigmatize. And that's obviously a big part of what, you know, we're dealing with politically today to this this day. It's a big part of the uh, debate in Washington. And, um, you know, arguably many feel we've regressed. But... You know, it's a it's a part of, uh, of of society as we know it, and it's a it's a it's a, a significant obstacle we have to continue to navigate. I read once that you likened this uh, in defending it, defending it from the controversy to um, a, an incident that occurred during the Holocaust, and that really s- spoke to me about wearing everybody wearing the Jewish star, the 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 yellow star of David, to say we're all part of this, even if you weren't Jewish, even if you weren't made to wear a Jewish star. I don't recall that, but um, but I do feel that as a community, that's how you overcome stigma. Yeah. And um, if you can all hold hands and uh, together align around the, the, the affected or the infected, and you can show your unqualified commitment and support, then um, it changes people's minds. Can I ask you to say a bit about that point in time in the mid-80s when... Matilda Krim and Elizabeth Taylor were forming AMFAR. They were talking to you. They were trying to move Congress. They were trying to to move President Reagan. This was a historic moment. You were witness to this. You were part of this. Can you tell us a bit about it? It's a story that I think most people don't understand. Right. We understood and recognized the need to have this discussion publicly, and until we did, that um, it was going to be a very dis- difficult discussion to be had. So, you know, other than just talking to ourselves. And the president, as we knew, was not, was reluctant to do it. And Elizabeth Taylor had a relationship with uh, the Reagans, and uh, she was able to get him, the president, to agree to come forth. Actually, was here in Washington um, in 87 and uh, take the stage action in an Amphar event and um, acknowledge the existence of AIDS for the first time. It was really important. And, you know, you can do all the right things scientifically and all the right things politically. But at the end of the day, unless you have that discussion and you address the circumstances in, in, a, in an open and, and honest way, it doesn't move forward. And, you know, the, the other thing, too, is the stigma at the time was so devastating. And at just pretty much at about that time, we were seeing AIDS in rate of infection grow exponentially in this country because it wasn't absolutely clear how to prevent it. Once you were infected, there was nothing. There was it was clear there was nothing you could do about it. So nobody was wanting to to get tested. So AIDS was existing in the shadows, and they were existing behind the doors, and it was a very private um, agony that people endured because if they came forward and they agreed to get tested. There was no assurance that those testing results would not become public. In fact, it was proved, it, it, it was instances at the time when they, that was in fact happening, which drove countless people basically underground. And, um, and they stood to get to compromise, to lose their jobs, to lose their insurance, and to be ostracized by their communities. So people were not getting tested. And to speak about AIDS, there was a presumption that you were at risk. So people didn't want to even speak about it. And I jokingly, but it's not a joke, would say that if I were to have spoken, people would assume that I was, I was uh, Haitian, I was an intravenous drug user, or I was gay, and being a single male designer, I knew everybody would assume I was Haitian. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> but, uh, but because I wasn't, I guess it was easier for me, because Matilde wasn't. And 
Elizabeth Taylor wasn't. And so many of the very strong, compassionate, um, and articulate voices at the time were not, were not affected and were not at risk of being affected. And maybe that's why it was easier for them. You and Elizabeth Taylor and Matilda Krim played this translator role of being able to connect to the community of those that were suffering in the midst of this plague and treat them with respect and compassion and bring their realities forward, but also connect to, the, to Congress to connect to the president and others and to connect through your ad campaigns and your voice of Amphar out to the broader public and media. Look, it was a privilege that I had and I knew I was saying something that, that, that most wouldn't. Most sane business people would not do what I did. But it was an opportunity to, to, to say something that I, that I knew was important. You know, people said, well, was there backlash? And, and there wasn't actually. I was prepared for it in some ways, but I, it, there really wasn't. And I think my community, the fashion community, is more open-minded, I think. Still, though, it's a tremendous business risk, especially when you jumped into this game to, you know, really and took on this issue. There was inherent risk. Um, there's no question, but I think there was an extraordinary opportunity, um, and uh, and there continues to be. It's a privilege to be able to be given this platform to connect people in this very meaningful way with the credentials to do it. Um, at the time, it was a lone voice, but even that first campaign about um, that I did with Annie Leibowitz, and uh, um, I I had already aligned myself with Anfar. And Matilda Krim was in the uh, audience, and she was present, as were other people from Amphar. And it was very important to me that this, this be form and substance, and that there be significance behind everything that we did, and with a real clear call to action, with real clear goals and objectives uh, on how we could uh, make make a difference. So now, you know, 2020 marks 30 years since the International AIDS Conference has been in the Bay Area and San Francisco, and it's returning there. It's going to be in Oakland and in San Francisco. What's the significance of this? Well, I, I think the significance is, first, that we're at a, a, a very critical time right now. And people are feeling very empowered, and we seem to have made a very significant difference uh, on all fronts. Prevention, treatment, and research has has had an impact and a lot of hope that a cure is around the corner and a preventative vaccine is not that far behind. So there's a lot of positives coming. The problem is that you've got a whole generation today that doesn't recognize AIDS to be a problem. And it's right. the parents' problem. And they're relatively reckless because they can be in their minds. And if, in fact, I am unlucky and I do get infected, there are drugs and I can live a relatively healthy life. And that's how so you have got a whole gen young generation today that looks at it in that regard. And that's the risk of regression in your view? Well, no, that's part of it. The other part is you've got now you have some people that are starting to become resistant to the, to the drugs. And then you also have this other populations, primarily in Africa, of people who are first becoming infected, young people, girls to a large degree, um, and many of whom we saved in the impact that was made in preventing, uh, in the mother, preventing the mother-to-child transmission. But you have many of these young girls now. So we saved them, you know, in the, in the uh, 10, 20 years ago, and now we're going to kill them um, because we're not prepared um, to, to, treat, to, to empower them and to treat them. So the feeling is that if we don't stay the course that we're on, and we've made a lot of progress, but if we don't stay this course and we're seeing a lot of um, resources being diverted from this crusade, that we could theoretically and likely, in many people's minds, 
people smarter than I, more vested in this than I, that we will likely return to, to historical rates of infection and then conceivably not be able to get our arms around it like we can now. Talk about the, you know, that it's your parents' problem. Because I, I, I see that too. It feels like the AIDS is almost passe for a younger generation that didn't grow up with it, that wasn't initially shocked by it um, like we were in the 80s. You know, when we grew up, it was a an acute crisis. It was on the news. People were dying. We knew them. We knew many of them. And People didn't understand it at all. And they didn't understand it, and they were fearful. And they didn't know to what degree it could impact them in what way. But it, it has become chronic now, and we've lived with it, and we've learned to live with it. And typically, in chronic circumstances, you don't get the attention and the resources and the, the media coverage. So... AIDS is not, it's just not a concern. And, it, and it's, I'm not seeing people die. And if they are, I can treat it. Uh, but it's, you know, the fact is a million people died last year of AIDS. And that many and more were first infected. And of the 36 plus million people today living with it, many will again die of AIDS. And I do believe that this generation ne- needs to be empowered. They need to be informed that this is still a problem. In fact, it's their problem. And that they can make it part of, it could be their legacy or it could be their demise. And that if empowered, they can make an impact. And I think uh, we need to show them how to do it. I mean, this generation doesn't know that, you know, in the 80s, people were really afraid of, you know, gay people. They were afraid that, you know, someone sneezed on them. I mean, I even remember in, in the recent movie, Bohemian Rhapsody, about Freddie Mercury and Queen, there's a scene where... Freddie um, announces to the band that he has AIDS and then he coughs or sneezes or something. And it's almost a moment where like, you know, you don't know if you can have physical contact with him anymore. But but the younger generation wouldn't have picked up on that. They wouldn't have known that the stigma was as such that, that you know, people were really afraid. They didn't know how AIDS was transmitted. They didn't understand that much about the disease. And, and now it's, I see an almost you know, cavalier feeling about it in the culture. And I agree with you. And I think our goal, our objective, hopefully, and maybe this conference can be a platform from which to do it, will be to um, engage them, inform them and engage them and empower them um, in, in this uh, crusade. And, uh, and we're so close to the finish line. And... Uh, it is absolutely not the right time to uh, to turn our backs. You've earlier talked about the need for a unifying message, that there not be a multitude of messages. What do you think the correct message should be for AIDS 2020? You have today, at any point in time, dozens of messages about the prevailing circumstances. And they're, they're in conflict with each other, usually. And, and they're coming out of all these areas... Um, most impacted around the world. But with social media today, nothing is ever isolated because everything is available everywhere. You pull up a hashtag and you can see anything that's being said. The conversation, it's a global conversation always. So we need to somehow unify that discussion. And then the message will resonate with a fraction of the resources. The message will have a significant amount of more reach and impact. And what do you think that message should be? Well, I I personally think right now the first message is that it's a problem. It's a real problem, and it's your problem. Um, And you can help, and you can make an impact in in fixing it. That is my personal thoughts, and and I'm not sure everybody looks at it that way. And, you know, AIDS is also, interestingly, it's a global problem, but 
Many argue that it's actually a lot of regional problems. You know, AIDS isn't the same crisis in South Africa as it is in the United States, and it's not the same crisis here there as it is in India, and in other places in the world. And ultimately, the call, the, the the levels of engagement, and the calls to action, aren't the exact same everywhere. But the one thing that is consistent, I think, is the fact that it's a problem. You know, it's a different kind of a problem. In South Africa. Um, you have a po- adult population of almost 20% that are living with, with HIV. And uh, an epidemic is determined, I think, to be 2 or 3%. So, but 20% is a lot. 20% is, un- is, is unconscionable. And it mostly people are dying from tuberculosis. Right. It still has its roots in HIV. And it's, again, it's a different, it's, it takes roots, it, it takes hold, and it's a, it manifests itself differently everywhere. So... Um, there isn't a, an easy singular voice, but I do think that the fact that it exists, that it prevails, and that it is profound um, is, is a unifier. We're really advantaged, it seems to me, by having very strong commitments from the elected political leadership in California to move this conference forward in the Bay Area in 2020. I know you've had a chance to speak with Speaker Pelosi. Uh, you'll be speaking with Congresswoman Lee. Can you say a bit about what you sense in terms of the commitments on the political level to the success of this conference. The commitment is, is very impressive. And Speaker Pelosi will tell you how she came to, she came to Congress 31 years ago and her, her torch was um, ending AIDS and bringing resources to the problem. And specifically in San Francisco, which is where she, where she was and, and the community that uh, she was representing. And she still carries that torch. Here she is as the speaker and arguably the most powerful women um, politician in the country. Maybe in some cases, the most one of the most powerful people. And Barbara Lee still carries the torch and, and Governor Gavin Newsom is committed to this. So you do have an, an inspired and committed and dedicated uh, elected officials in, 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 in San Francisco. There. What about on the Republican side, though, here, you know, in Washington, writ large? I mean, the, this administration's given some indications that they care about the issue, um, which surprised some people. Wasn't that surprising, though, that, you know, Donald Trump's a New Yorker. He came up with, you know, he knows lots of people came up with this, too. I do. And, and, you know, he messaged that in his last um, State of the Union address. Uh, We know that the vice president was very vocal during Bush years in the um, implementation of PEPFAR. And, and they did it maybe from an evangelical lens, but a, an important voice nonetheless. And the results and the resources were even more significant, arguably, than they would have been otherwise. There is a nonpartisan or bipartisan commitment to this issue. So, um, and now the question is, can the two groups actually work together and make an impact? Right. Can they align on a process by nature of uh, you know, a, an inability of many to sometimes do that, but um, but there's no reason they shouldn't. And I do, and Trump even, I do believe, recognizes the need to do this. And and it, this could be part of his legacy. The new national plan to eliminate by 2030. Yeah, and he could put in place a process that sees it through, and he could, uh, and deservedly get, get credit for it, or at some level. It was implemented by Bush, and then it was perpetuated by Obama, but but, but Trump can play an important role. This new national plan, I mean, it was carefully put together by a pretty all-star team, right? Tony Fauci, Robert Redfield, Brett Garrar, John O'Merman at CDC. These, they've got a very serious plan. 
I think we'll see all of those folks involved in this conference one way or the other. Uh, Secretary Azar stood behind this, marketed this idea, blessed it, got it going. So there should be real representation from this administration at, at, the, the, at conference. the conference. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. They'll have a story to tell. There's going to be difficult issues in implementing this strategy uh, for all the reasons we've talked about. But nonetheless, the fact that they've taken up the challenge to put this forward is quite promising. Right. It is. So all the pieces are in place. Now the question is, who can now, on some sort of an inclusive level, bring everybody together um, around the table, which is very hard to do these days on any issue. So, if we, and maybe this this could be this could represent a very big breakthrough, right, on a lot of levels if we can see this. Well, too. you know, it, it's it's interesting. I I have this theory that Washington's all craving issues that we can work together on, and hopefully this is one of them. I think you're right. The fact that we can work together, I guess, is the first hurdle. Yeah. Now the question is, how can we work together is the next hurdle. And I have absolute confidence that you can see this through, Andrew, so uh, that you can bring the sides together. And uh, With uh, Steve Morrison's <laughs> help, anything can happen. Well, between the two of you, I'm absolutely, there's no doubt that you can bring these two sides I mean, We've been talking together. about PEPFAR. You know, Steve convened the Kerry and Frist here at CSIS to co-sponsor the PEPFAR legislation. And, and uh, this is something we've been committed to at CSIS for a long time. So... We're, we're, uh, we're thrilled to be working on this issue. We're thrilled to have you here with us. And um, we hope you'll come back to CSIS and we can, you know, have you give a public speak and maybe we even do a public podcast. Look, I'm happy to, to help if I can. And as a subject, I've a journey I've been on and been part of for a long time. It's something I, I care a lot about. And if I can be helpful, I will continue to bring whatever I can to this discussion. Kenneth Cole, thank you very much for being with us here today at CSIS. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank Privilege. You. Thank you for listening to AIDS 2020. Please subscribe and write a review wherever you listen to your podcast so that more people can find us. If you want to find out more about CSIS's research on the global fight against HIV AIDS, go to CSIS.org and look for the Global Health Policy Center program page. To find out more about the AIDS 2020 conference, visit AIDS2020.org.